Lead us from darkness to light, from lower truth to higher truth, from the unreal to the real, from the illusion of death to immortality. Reach us through and through, O Lord and Mother, with thy sweet and benign presence. Om peace, peace, peace. May this profound peace enter into us, permeate us to the very core of our being. Om Om. Om Satyena. Om Satyena Labias Tapasa Yesa Atma Samyagyanena Brahmacharyena Nityam Antaha Sharirehi Jyotir Mayohi Shubraha Yampashanti Atayaha Kshina Doshaha Om Shanti 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 Yatman, the indivisible self within, is realized through continence, austerity, wisdom, veracity, all constantly cultivated. When mental impurity is dissolved due to this practice, the seer beholds it, radiant and ever pure, existing everywhere, even here, amidst this very life and body. Om peace, peace, peace. Om Sahana, Om Sahana May Brahman protect us, may Brahman sustain us, and may Brahman illumine our thinking process. May we not find fault with each other, with the teachings, or with what we study, or with the world. And may what we study be a source of inspiration to us eternally. Om peace, peace, peace. May peace be unto us, and may peace be unto all. Om Hari Om. Welcome to SRV Retreat Center on the slopes of Mount Achaia. It's December 7th of the year 2003, and we are making our way through Bhagavad Gita by picking out certain salient slokas, which quintessentialize the message of Sri Krishna, a message which is concurrent with the day and time, that is, we find that truth never changes and there's only this one single truth, the truth of non-duality or non-origination, wherein everything is whole, pure, perfect, 
This is the main principle on the minds of all the luminaries, the saints and seers and savants and sages and saviors of the different religious traditions of the world. They talk about this one non-dual Brahman, or Allah, or Almighty Father, or Buddha Nature. They put it in different terms, different names, but that one truth, that one verity remains ever pure, ever true, and all-pervasive. Even associated, as our chants just stated, with the world of name and form. Associated is an important word. The spirit can never be matter. It's reflecting itself through the various water pots of human intellects and through the five elements of prakriti and nature. This kind of non-dual view is stated mainly by Gaudapada and Shankar and other great luminaries, but it's corroborated by teachers like Sri Krishna and in this day and age Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa and Ramana Maharshi and others who declare this non-origination to be the very highest. Non-duality is the very highest. Being what it is, it has no quarrel with other schools. It simply rests in its own non-dual essence. And those who make that non-dual essence the point and pursuit of their lives, they rest in it too. To quote the Upanishads, those who love and think about Brahman become Brahman. So this world of name and form, which reflects some of the glimmers of, of light of that non-dual essence, and these body-mind mechanisms flowing with prana and energy through which individual souls, apparently individualized souls, experience life in relativity in the realm of time, space, and causation in the realm of name and form are permeated with that essence. It's a oneness which they talk about not in terms of numerical oneness, because you can't even assign the term one to Brahman. See, It's just a, a sort of reference uh, by way of teaching. You might be more correct to say not two, or not many, but reflects in the many. But they use the word Advaita, and they described it as Vyapaka, that is something that's all pervasive. Its oneness is true because of the nature of its lying in and throughout everything. That's why Upanishads say, higher than the highest, lower than the lowest, swifter than the swiftest, which fire cannot burn and wind cannot dry out, water cannot saturate. So they are always speaking in terms of a non-material essence. That's why I say at the outset, that spirit is not matter. All the great teachers have said that. But those sensualists, hedonists, materialists haven't yet come to understand this profound station of non-dual reality, which they termed Advaita. Krishna is about to take us through many references on a journey through the realm of Advaita. Now when you talk about non-duality, the first problem you're going to face is the world of name and form, multiplicity, relativity. So that's the second thing that's always on the minds of the saints and sages and seers, this appearance of things. When even science is finding that there's no solid basis for the universe, even at a physical level, that is everything is just vibrating particles, 
changing at a millionth of a second, and they can't find any stable substratum, then science begins to approach philosophy. That is what the ancient Samkhya scientists and other luminaries of that period, the period of the rishis, the golden age of truth, Satya Yuga, they call it. Then they begin to see that bridge being constructed between the latest scientific discoveries and the ancient truths of Sanatana Dharma, a philosophy, a living philosophy, not a bookish philosophy, but something that was based upon the experiences of the great ones, which they so kindly passed on from mind to mind in a series of transmission. Guru Parampara, we call it, the great teachers down to us. Krishna is not just a great teacher, but he's an archetypical soul, a firstborn, avatar, incarnation, of which there's only one. The Christians have it half right. If oneness is the truth of existence, the essence being all pervasiveness, then it must be that these avatars are never many. See, these divine incarnations that come, whether they be labeled prophets or messengers or sages or avatars or divine incarnations, there must be one consciousness there at all times. And that's the most subtle enigmatic piece of information that the mind can possess. And it's the hardest to keep track of when beings are in the midst of living their lives in relativity. So that's why they describe enlightenment or illumination, moksha, mukti, koivalya, satori, samadhi, various names they put to this, this stage of realization as something ever-present, not something that changes. So they draw a very stark distinction between the changing and the unchanging. Last week we studied in the Gita the yoga of the imperishable Brahman, where Krishna was telling Arjuna right there on the battlefield about this imperishable reality, which always is, always was, always will be. It's not conjured up by the recollections of the past or looked into uh, due to the allurements of the future. See, it's, it's always ever-present. When they talk about be here now, if you look into the deeper meaning of that phrase, then that's what they would be pointing towards, something which is ever-present verity. And Krishna is speaking about that in so many different ways, coming from so many dif different directions to try and transform Arjuna's mind. And no better place to do it than right there before the impending battle on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, where Arjuna's mind is wide open and receptive in that charged energy, where a great sacrifice is about to be undertaken. So we studied the yoga of the imperishable Brahman in chapter 8, and we finished that up, if you remember, on the board with those two paths that Krishna was talking about, the path of light and the smoky path, or the path of darkness, wherein he was speaking of the difference between the path of light and the path of darkness, the path of jnana and the path of ajnana. So that means wisdom and ignorance, those who follow the path of knowledge or wisdom leading to the highest truth. Of course, when we say knowledge and wisdom, we don't mean secularized knowledge, although that's uh, a form also that's uh, beneficial to study, but uh, especially this higher knowledge, Vidya Shastra, knowledge of the highest truths reflected in the revealed scriptures of the different religious traditions of the world, that's true knowledge. 
with the most beneficial effect on human mind. So, Sri Krishna is talking to Arjuna about that highest truth. And that path of knowledge, that path of ignorance, or sometimes he also described it as the path of no return and the path of return or rebirth. This gets closer to the study of maya. Samsara, sometimes you hear, hear that Sanskrit phrase borrowed by the Buddhists. Samsara, cycles of, or rounds of birth and death and ignorance. Here, not ignorance meaning being unlettered or uninformed about the fields of secular knowledge. You can be very informed on the level of science, philosophy, uh, and various arts and so forth, but still be ignorant of your true nature. So when they say agyana in this tradition, the opposite of gyan, uh, means ignorance of one's true nature. Chapter 9, which is on the board, he's calling rajavidya rajaguya yoga. That is, the yoga of the sovereign secret and sovereign science. There's 34 slokas in this chapter. I've chosen just a few to concentrate on. But there's an interesting mention at the very top. Idam tu te guyatman pravyakshami anashujave jnanam vijnanam sahitam yajgyatva mokshase shubat. The Blessed Lord said, To all of you who do not cavil, I will surely declare this, the most profound knowledge combined with realization, by knowing which you will be released from all evils. You remember, we've already studied in the first eight chapters where Sri Krishna has mentioned carping and caviling being a very difficult thing to overcome in the human mind. It can be in the form of complaining, a sort of disease which one is always complaining or can come in the form of rationalization to everything. That one has to know only the outer meaning of something and become satisfied with just that and doesn't go to the inner meaning of it. What to speak of the transcendent meaning of it. There are three different meanings to slokas in the scriptures. An outer, an inner, and a transcendent. Transcendent is, of course, your very experience of it when you put it into practice and come to know it. So most beings, if they can even get so far, will come to understand maybe the outer meaning. Oh, I understand now. So it becomes an intellectual assumption. That is, the ego part of the mind grabs a hold of it and says, this knowledge is now mine. I will put this in my store of knowledge, and I will believe in that. But there's a subtler inner meaning. They call it sutratman, something that runs through the sloka, through the saying, which is being transmitted right now when I say it to the mind that's listening with faith and desire for higher knowledge. It's called transmission. According to Vivekananda, you cannot get that from a book, or from a temple, or from a pilgrimage, from going to place to place. It has to be from soul to soul. So you find the principle of guru being very important in our tradition, and in many traditions. You must hear it from the lips of an illumined soul. Means some have heard of the Atman, the self within, 
Some have never heard of it. Some have heard of it, but don't comprehend it yet. Very fortunate is the one who hears of it. Wonderful is the one who speaks about it, but blessed is the one who realizes it now, here, in this very life. So, slokas like that are strewn throughout the treasure house of uh, revealed scripture, especially in Sanatana Dharma, where you have such great scriptures as Yoga Vashishta, which we've been studying, Narada's Bhakti Sutras, Ashtravakra Samhita, Uddhava Gita, Avadhuta Gita, Bhagavad Gita, Upanishads, Vedas, Ramayana, Adyatma Ramayana, and on and on. You'll find through all those wonderful revealed scriptures, especially the ones that have the non-dual element accented, that that form of transmission is alive and well between guru and disciple, between preceptor and student. But what comes in the way of it is complaint, cavil, carping and caviling. I don't believe that, or I I believe what I believe and not what my teacher believes. You must come with an open heart. Hear these teachings say, I vibrate with that. Now I'll check it out and verify it for my own. So they have the three great sources. Guru Anushasana, you must have an illumined teacher. Vidya Shastra, you must also look into the revealed scriptures. And Aparokshanabhuti great scripture by Shankara, Aparoksha Anubhuti, I must have my own direct perception of what's being told, what's being related, I must have my own direct experience to follow through. <coughs> so cavil is a kind of conceit, sometimes it's a jealousy, it's sort of a disease of the mind, it prevents us from rising in wisdom and knowledge, keeps us down into mere secular pursuits or worse, into the evil conjurings of a a darkened mind. Well, Krishna is talking to Arjuna on the battlefield. Arjuna is no slouch. See, he's a warrior of the highest prowess. He's also very astute in all the secular sciences. But he hasn't yet heard and comprehended this non-dual truth. So in the first six chapters, Krishna has given Arjuna the karma yoga. He's talked with him all about karma yoga, how to act in the world. Whether the world be real or unreal, you're still under the auspices of karma, cause and effect. When the West understands cause and effect and uses that as its basis for understanding instead of original sin, then many problems will begin to be solved. Because you'll realize that you're creating your own predicament. You see, you're dreaming your own dream of pain and pleasure or delusion and illusion, and you'll awaken up from the dream and know the, the source to be yourself. Oneness has many, many wonderful facets to it. The unanimated animator, or the uh, uncaused cause, or the unstruck sound, or the inactive agent. They have various names for Brahman. Because remember that Maya exists in Brahman, so uh, as Sri Krishna said, poison exists in the snake, but the snake doesn't die because of that. In that way, good and bad are all other pairs of opposites, dualities. Dvanva Mohena, Patanjali, the father of yoga, called them. Exist in Brahman, yet Brahman is not affected by them, is always transcendent of them. That's the good news in Vedanta. But you won't get this good news by carping and caviling from the outside. You must enter in. 
with an open heart, an open mind, and begin to hear these truisms and meditate on them, gain your own experience. So Krishna starts out the whole chapter saying, Raja Vidya, Raja Guya. If you want this supreme science, this supreme secret, stop caviling, complaining, carping, resisting, rationalizing. Better to start discriminating than just rationalizing. See, and Then you'll have a firm basis on which to enter into this. Next sloka he says, this supreme science, this sovereign secret is the supreme purifier. It is directly realizable in accord with Dharma, very easy to practice and imperishable. Let's look at this for a second. Rajaguya, the kingly secret. Rajavidya, the king of sciences. Pavitram, pure. Uttamam, highest. Pratyaksham, avagamam, realizable by direct intuition. Dharmyam, realizable in accordance with what's righteous, dharma. And susukkam, very easy. And avyayam, imperishable. Those are the key Sanskrit words in the sloka. If you take them apart and just say it like that, even without stringing them together via our uh, intellectual English, this is the supreme science and the supreme secret. It's very easy of realization. It's direct. Your own insight can give it to you. It purifies the mind, otherwise made impure by attraction and, and aversion to various things of the world. And it must be practiced in accordance with Dharma, righteousness. And remember last week in Arti, I told a story about, I think it was Maharaj, Swami Brahmananda, when one student asked him, what if you found out that God was not true that all these things that we believe in that are subtle, that are beyond the ken of human understanding, that are based on faith and not, not just secular knowledge, if they weren't true, what if all of a sudden you had that realization? <laughs> and Swami said, I wouldn't live any different than I'm living now, because that's Dharma, you see. Once you realize a station of peace, inner peace and self-control, goodness, benignness, to all human beings, service of them, then you have a feeling of dharma. You have a feeling that, that everything is right. See, this is a good feeling. This is what most people vibrate towards. So Milarepa, the great Tibetan sage, he sang a beautiful song in which he said, when I hear the dharma spoken by my teacher, I can't help but share it with all other beings. So it's something that galvanizes you, this truth. And as we said, you cannot carp and cavil about it. You must accept it. And when you do, you'll penetrate through and you'll find out that it's a supreme secret. It's a supreme sovereign science. Vidya Shastra. It is the very science of truth. There is a science to truth. It's not just religion and philosophy. You might say it's religion and philosophy combined. That is, you can't have just a dry intellect without any devotion. And you can't have an illumined mind without any faith. Put the two together, and you've got mind that's seated in the heart. See, So when you meditate, your third eye and your heart are aligned. It's called clarity then, samprasad. You have a clarity of everything. It's crystal clear to you what's going on, what went on before, what's possible in the future. 
because the three phases of time are all seen by you, past, present, and future. And you're not a believer in them as being actual. It's a play. So when one gets to this level of understanding the supreme science, Rajavidya, it takes over, just like we said earlier, when one gets detachment, any of those levels of detachment from the world, then the things of the world seem insipid. Well, when somebody begins to hear about this higher truth, the things that they studied in the secular realm aren't so appealing anymore, because you see they're based on birth, growth, death, disease, old age, and decay. Birth, death, disease, growth, old age, and decay. Everything's coming and going. What does Gaudapada say about that? The great non-dualist. If there is thus this unreality of entities and objects in all states, who then is the cognizer of these things, and who again is their imaginer? The indivisible Atman imagines itself by itself through its own maya. It is that alone that cognizes entities, which is the conclusion of the Upanishads too. The Atman in its dynamic phase diversifies other entities, those differently set up and those fixed within the mind, and thus does the Lord imagine. Thoughts and dualities existing within are also mere products of imagination, and differentiation between the two is not due to any other reason. All things existing without and within are products of the imagination, their differentiation being due to association with the different organs of the senses. The Lord then verily imagines living beings, the entities of various sorts, external, objective, internal, subjective, as one cognizes, so one remembers. As the rope not correctly ascertained in the dark is imagined to be possessed of attributes of a snake, so likewise Atman is imagined to be all sorts of things. When the rope is ascertained by itself, as itself, all imagined attributes turn away and truth emerges. So likewise takes place the ascertainment of the Atman. Atman is imagined to be prana, energy, various entities. It is taken to be gunas, that's modes of nature. It's taken to be principles of knowledge. It's taken to be objects, lokas, gods, scriptures, sacrifices, enjoyment, objects of enjoyment. It's taken as to be subtle or gross. It's taken to be various quarters of the universe. It's taken to be mind as intellect, as thought, as merit and demerit, as dharma and adharma, as constituted of 24, 25, 31, 32, or unending principles. It's taken to be ashrams, symbols, males, females, neuters, higher, lower, coming, going, creation, destruction, dissolution, as subsistence. All of these are imagined in respect of the Atman. Whatever entity is presented to a person, that person sees that entity, and that entity, having assumed his form, protects him. Strong attachment to that form encompasses him. This Atman is seen as separate owing to these entities, though it is really non-separate. One who knows this truth may, without fear, imagine this Atman to be anything without any hesitation. Thus, Gaudapada goes on in his wonderful karika. He uses this analogy. As earthen jars dissolve back into the akasha, so too do apparently individualized souls merge into Atman. 
As these earthen jars have a connection with dust, ash, and smoke, so too do the jivas have interactions with happiness, sorrow, and other emotions. As in the human body where name and form and function differ, but the akasha does not change at all, similarly the atman is never affected by its projections called individual souls. As the earthen jar is not a transformation or a portion of the akasha, likewise the individual jiva is not a transformation or portion of the atman. So you're not a manifestation of the atman, you are the atman. In birth and death, in coming and going, in remaining stationary in bodies, Atman is not at all dissimilar to this Akasha. Akasha, of course, means a vastness of space. Not just outer space, but inner space. The constitution of all things is set forth by the Maya of Atman, like in a dream. With regard to their superiority or equality, there is no convincing ground to enable us to prove that objects are real. Powerful thoughts like that on a non-dual level are part of this Rajavidya. They're part of this sovereign science and sovereign secret of truth. Truth never dreams. See, Swamiji would say, you are not in Maya, Maya is in you, so be free of it. Awaken from it this very moment. Know yourself to be that one indivisible spirit and live in that realization. Assumptions and imaginations and fantasies, even conceptualizations, plans for the future, brooding on the past. Those are the things you need to renounce. If you can get to those in the mind and say, get thee behind me, see, do away with them, and then you begin to live more and more in a non-dual state. As you live more and more in a non-dual state, then you see how Maya works. As long as you're in Maya, you can't see its workings. It's too subtle. It's like the eye that can't see itself. The eye sees everything else, but it can't see itself. If you're in Maya, Maya is working all around you and in you, and you believe in it. You believe in evolution. You believe in creation, preservation, destruction. You believe that you're born. You believe you're going to die. You believe that you're living. But you never believe in the eternal life, in which everything, even objects, are non-originated. In other words, uh, creation is not is not a possibility. You can't create something because you'd be doing something out of nothing. Nothingness doesn't exist. It's all fullness. So you conjure up a, an object by the power of your mind, any object, you see, and then it's a conjuring. It's a projection. You can just as easily do away with it, not only as a physical object, but in the mind where it began. So Rajavidya, the supreme secret, is like Shristi or Hasyan Tantra. Everything begins with the word, with a vibration. And everything that's vibrating is changing. So then, where's that non-vibrational place from which everything got projected? We call it Om. That one word represents a non-vibrational place. If you can somehow get your mind into that space for 11 seconds, then it's a minor samadhi, where the mind refuses to think. It's sort of like jada samadhi, inertness. It just doesn't want to go anywhere else than its own nature now. If you can get your mind into that state where it doesn't want to go anywhere, doesn't want to leave its true nature anymore, they describe that as bliss, as peace, as non-dual wisdom, see, it? the whole thing is just there in a dot. And you know what that dot is in Vedanta? 
It's called bindu. You even see it worn on the foreheads of various practitioners. The women even wear it as a sign of marriage in India. But bindu, in, in philosophical terms, is that point where everything exists. If you can penetrate that point with concentration, you'll see how the entire universe is fashioned out of conceptualization by the cosmic mind. The whole thing is projected by mind, and it doesn't take seven days, and it doesn't take trillions of years to do it. It's there, and it's gone in an instant. This is a very subtle thing to understand, and if understood, provides that enigmatic piece of information you've been looking for, that the world is definitely unreal, and only Brahman is real. When we say unreal, we mean changing, not illusory. There are plenty of illusory things which the mind conjures up, which give us problem, which don't exist, but which we fabricate. But this one thing, called Maya, is, is God's own power to project and destroy things. That is, project and withdraw, I should say. Because you can't destroy something that's never created. So, thinking about non-creation is a fine step, and one of the main principles of this supreme science that Krishna is talking about. Non-origination. Nothing is ever born, so it can never die. Why is Krishna telling Arjuna this? Because he's on the battlefield and he has to kill relatives who are in the other army across the battlefield. Where's the problem in this, Krishna says? They're already dead. I've slain them. And if you want to know the truth, the whole thing, battle, people, all things, are projected by Maya. They're non-actual. There's never a time when those warriors across the field were not in existence. There'll never come a time when they won't be in existence. Their very nature is existence. You're attached to the form. So Arjuna is getting some very profound schooling in Rajavidya, the supreme science. And it's going to culminate here in chapter 11 when he starts to get a vision of the cosmic form. Vishvarupa Darshanam. It's going to be very powerful there. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Krishna follows up his warning about carping about truth and his declaration of a sovereign science and sovereign secret by saying in Sloka 3, Men devoid of faith for this dharma do not attain to the highest, but return to the path of the mortal world. All right, well, here again is reference to the path of darkness as opposed to the path of light. Beings who are drugged from birth to death and death to birth. Beings who believe in the reality of something which is projected and therefore non-actual, therefore formulate in their mind karmas and associations around an unreal thing. And then they imagine another unreal thing in their next life and another unreal thing in their next life. It's called cycles of birth and death and ignorance. It's like an enchanter creating a world and then entering into it, believing in it, and forgetting that he created it. So bodies, minds, worlds, conceptualizations, mind, intellect, lokas, heavens, hells, and earths are all in maya. They're all in the projected creation, all moving constantly. They're born in a second, they die in a second. They're there when you awaken, they're gone when you're in deep sleep. How actual are they? But the, the one who's having the experience, you see, the experiencer, the eternal subject, 
That's real. That's why Ram Prasad sings, I'm like a bumblebee flying around flowers on a tapestry. <laughs> he thinks the flower is real. So he says, turn, O mind, to the original. Turn and face inward. Look at your true self. If you could make the eye see itself somehow. See, that's why looking in a mirror at yourself is a, is a profound experience at times. What am I? Who am I? Of course, that's the great question, isn't it? Who am I? That's Atmavichara, the inquiry into the nature of self. Remember this chapter is called The Supreme Science and the Sovereign Secret. So he's giving us a very, very well thought out course which to follow. Of Yakta, God is all pervasive. Nabudastaha, that God is not in the creation and not in the beings. Vishrajami, he sends forth all these beings as a projection. Udasinavat, He's unconcerned and unattached when he does this projecting. Mudhacha Mahatma, there are two different kinds of beings, foolish beings who take the projection as real and luminaries who know it to be coming from Brahman. Point six was those beings bound into pleasure-seeking. Seven was the accrual of karma. Eight was seeking merit in order to gain the worlds of heaven. Nine was revelation that the world, all worlds are transient. Ten is gain devotion to God. Let's look now at these sokas on the board and inject them into our consciousness. He starts out the whole chapter, To you who do not cavil, I shall surely declare this, the most profound knowledge combined with realization, by knowing which you will be released from evil. The sovereign science and the sovereign secret, the supreme purifier is this, directly realized and accordable with dharma very easy to practice and imperishable. He's talking about this supreme science. The commentator calls it Rajapatha, the royal road. It's Raja Yoga, the road by which beings get themselves up and out of Maya, or realize that they're never in Maya. Maya's in them, as Swamiji put it. Sloka 3, men devoid of Shraddha for this Dharma do not attain me, O oppressor of foes, but return to the path of the mortal world. Here's the tenor of the whole chapter, really, as far as those cross-section of beings who, what to speak of falling from the goal, never think there's a goal to begin with. And that brings us up to the slokas I have on the board. Ashwaram Yoga. Here's another kind of yoga for you. Of course, we know that all the chapters of the Gita are called by different yogas. This one's called Rajavidya Rajaguya Yoga, the yoga of the supreme science and supreme secret. But now he's talking about Ashwaram Yoga. The Lord's Divine Yoga. Ashwaram is one of the powers of God, the power to rule over everything. I combine this with Sloka 5. All this universe is pervaded by me and my unmanifested form. All beings exist in me, but I do not abide in them. Nor do the beings dwell in me. Behold my Divine Yoga bringing forth and supporting the beings myself does not dwell in them. So, 
if you want to put this very succinctly, consciousness is never in time and space. Time and space are illusions fabricated by the mind. They don't really exist. They're appearance. Like there's no real water in a mirage. Let's see. It appears to be, but it's not there. In fact, if you look around the world, like the Avadut did at various things in nature, you'll see everything is saying to you, as it were, God is, but this is all appearance. There are so many ways in which uh, appearance. Uh, we look up in the sky and we think it's all flat. Or we think the world is flat because we look across and it seems to be all flat. But ba basically the world was discovered to be spherical after a certain time. The moon appears in the sky and it seems to be a quarter and it seems to be a half and then it seems to be three quarters, but it's always full. So there's so many different ways in which nature itself is telling you this is all appearance. See through it and see what's behind it. That's why the Lord says all pervasiveness. We studied that in the points and principles of the Upanishads, remember, one of the great principles of Vedanta science. God is all pervasive. So when we say God is one, we don't mean numerical one. We say it's in everything. But he's saying here it's really not. To be in Brahman, what does it mean to be in Brahman? First you have to be aware there's just a such thing as a divine yoga. He brings forth and supports all beings, but his self does not dwell in them. He's never in time and space. He's not in the worlds. Everything is in him. So you have to turn around and look at your own original face. Turn within and look at the reality because you're looking out. That's why the Upanishads said the senses are all defective by nature because they only experience outwardly. That's why the efficacy comes of turning them in, turning them off, storing up their power, putting them on the heart in meditation. And then you'll know the secret, the supreme science and the supreme secret. That was sloka four and five. Sloka six is an analogy. As the mighty wind moving everywhere ever rests in the akasha, know you so that so do all beings rest in me. Well, akasha, of course, is the background and substratum of all other of the elements. It's uh, non-displaceable. You could move an object, air will move, but ether won't. See, that's how subtle it is. In the same way, uh, they use akasha as a Example of Brahman being immovable, like all-pervasive. It's not displaceable. Not only is it not displaceable by the movement of objects, but it's non-displaceable by super impositions or overlays as time, space, causality, and so forth. Uh, what moves, what's animate, what's non-animate, what, what is material and what's non-material, what's manifest and what's non-manifest, as we were just talking about, because it is the supreme unmanifest. Everything comes from it, in the form of a projection, but and everything rests in it, but it never changes its nature. A beautiful analogy, actually, of that is Sri Ramakrishna's story of the matron. The matron, you see, is sending everything people in the village need. She sends money, she sends the workers, she pays for the wood. Uh, pretty soon she even pays the people who cook the food, and she keeps giving and giving. And then the time for the big festival comes, and she never shows up. That's the way Brahman is. It'll never show up because it's not in time and space. So when we say looking for love in all the wrong places, say we should change that to looking for God in all the wrong places. We want to look 
for God, we must look inside ourselves, not out into nature, out into the world. There in a manger, no crib for a bed, little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. Stars don't have eyes. We've been raised with these kinds of ideas that space are, is somehow animate or is somehow sentient. We can use those things in songs, as lyrics. We can think of them as cute. We can think of them as nice and clever and so forth. But the truth still has to be revealed to us. And we still have to look inside and know that that divinity is within us. You see that reality as lies within, or as Christ put it, the kingdom of heaven is within you. So, as the mighty wind moving everywhere rests in the Akasha, know you too that all beings rest in me. Brahman is ever at rest, but a manifested universe still comes out of him, isn't it? Marvelous. Or Sri Ramakrishna used to say, though the wind carries good and bad odors, it itself still remains unaffected. It passes. So this Parabrahma in no way is affected by the appearance of the universe. Nama Rupa, the, the world of name and form. Because it's all non-actual, for one thing. That which goes through transmutation could be very, very attracting as a study. And so if you made a study of transmutation, then you'd begin to believe that things change, that all things change. But you would never see the changeless in that study. You'd never know the substratum. Science, even uh, schools of philosophy, religion, conventional religion and so forth, math and various knowledge, they study these things, believing them all to be real. But what if they studied them, knowing them to be unreal, that they're all projections? That a thing can't change its nature. If it's once Brahman, it's always Brahman. Or if it's once formless, it's always formless. If you believe that the formless remains formless and it can't change its nature, then what is all this? Transmutation must be non-actual. This was their very deep thinking on the subject. And what to speak of just thinking, they began to then use that as a, a lever or as a prod in the balloon of Maya, you see, to bust it open and, and gaze upon their, their true nature again, to undo the fashioning of Maya. As Swamiji said it nicely, to, we will crush the stars to atoms. We will unhinge the universe. That's exactly what he's talking about. It doesn't mean that you're going to send rocket ships up and begin to break away with men with little picks trying to crush stars to atoms. He means we'll know that it's a mental fabrication projected by our own mind and we'll crush it down and we'll see through it to the reality behind it. So here Krishna in Sloka 6 using an analogy that the mighty wind moves everywhere but it rests in the Akasha. It comes from the Akasha sinks back into the Akasha. Nobody even ever sees it. It's a very nice analogy. Going on to Sloka 7, All beings, O Kaunteya, go into my prakriti at the end of a kalpa. Kalpa is a mighty long time. I generate them again at the beginning of the next kalpa. That sets up what I have on the board. Prakritim sva avastabhya. Sloka 8 reads, Animating my Prakriti, I send forth again and again all this multitude of beings helpless under the regime of Prakriti. So this projection, what he calls animation of Prakriti, is a very 
important key of this Raja Vidya, Raja Guya, this yoga of uh, supreme science and secret. We don't have to go far for the next teaching. Nor do these acts bind me who remain like one unconcerned and attached to these acts. Well, there we had those nice words, asaktam. Unconcerned, non-attached. Unconcerned. Sounds a little callous, doesn't it? But then just look at the beings who have been projected in this realm of prakriti. When they're happy, they dance around in joy and they celebrate their good fortune. But when they're unhappy and sad, things come upon them, then, then they blame the Lord, see? But the Lord uh, remains unconcerned. He's neither happy nor sad. He's beyond dualities. That's why in the very early slokas, Krishna tried to get them to understand that Brahman's all-pervasive. And, and in fact, this might be a good time to illustrate in the, from the Upanishads some of these great teachings. Engrossed in the ways of the ignorant, these people think that they have gained the ends of life. But being subject to passions and attachment, they never attain knowledge, and therefore they sink down wretched when the fruits of their good deeds are exhausted. Having scrutinized the world's gained by deeds, a man of spiritual inclination should become indifferent to them. For deeds which are originated cannot win the supreme who is unoriginated. Therefore, to know that, become a pupil under an illumined preceptor who is both learned in the scripture and established in the self. To such a seeker whose mind is tranquil and senseless controlled and who approaches a teacher in proper form, let the wise teacher impart the science of Brahman in its very essence, the science by which one knows the true imperishable being. Might have been taken right out of this ninth chapter. Again, uh, affirming for us the supreme science and the, and the supreme secret. These are Mundaka Upanishad section 2, slokas 12, 13. So interesting that uh, the rishis say, deeds which are originated... It's something that has a, a beginning and an end or a cause and effect or an action and a result cannot win the supreme being who's unoriginated. So beings are thinking, if I work hard, I will gain all. I'll even gain God. See, So this is what I was saying about Sri Krishna's point that the two kinds of foolish beings, one who doesn't seek at all, one who seeks heaven, that the rishis and Great teachers like Sri Krishna came down on them very hard for their foolish seeking, for their futile seeking, and tried to uh, waken up and direct those ones towards something higher, something of a, of a more lasting attainment. Scrutinizing the world's gain by deeds, a being of spiritual inclination should become indifferent to them. Why indifferent? Because the Lord himself, in his very nature, is unconcerned and indifferent, non-attached. Be thee like thy father is in heaven. Well, then first we have to know what our Father in Heaven really is like. First we have to know if, if He really in Heaven, <laughs> or what is Heaven, you see. Is it a place? Is it a loka? Well, you see, Krishna just told me all lokas are joyless. They're transient. So what am I seeking here? This is one of the, you might say, the cosmic pivotal points of philosophy in this time in recorded history that we have, is that some beings, the Upanishads say, 
went against the grain, the direction everyone was going, and perhaps or perchance they turned back inside of themselves to trace their course back to the source. Oh, we're getting too far out here. <laughs> we're getting too far away. And then by tracing their course back to the source, they realized what? That you can't go away from Brahman because it's all pervasive. That you can't invest in a mirage and a projection. And that the mirage is all in you. It's your own doing. It's your own projection, you see. And you don't want to be one of those beings that's going helpless into animated prakriti. You want to know yourself as identified with the Supreme Being at all times. And you do that through seeking higher knowledge under the guidance of an able preceptor, this Upanishad says. So you can make very beautiful correlations and it's no coincidence that the Bhagavad Gita is called a fifth Veda. They consider it Shruti. Upanishads, Brahmasutras, Bhagavad Gita, Prasthanatrayam, the three great sources, three great occurrences in, in philosophical history, spiritual history, are those those books according to Sanatana Dharma of the Hindus. We found out that Brahman is unaffected by these movements. Let's read those slokas between 9 and 12. Because of my proximity, Prakriti produces all this. Now, Prakriti is an interesting word. Don't think of it just as physical nature. Leaves, plants, water, trees, five elements. Prakriti also is that unmanifested Prakriti. Everything that can be brought into being through unlimited potential. So Prakriti is both manifested, it's an unmanifested. It's form and it's formless both. That's an interesting distinction to make or a good piece of information to have because then you don't think of it just as manifested Prakriti, but there's the unmanifested Prakriti Krishna keeps talking about too. But here again, back to the point, Sloka 10. Because of my proximity, Prakriti produces all this, the moving and the unmoving. The world therefore revolves. O son of Kunti. Imagine, like Sri Ramakrishna tried to make it easy for us. There's a pan of water, and there's a fire under it, the vegetables are dancing. child goes up and says to the mother, look at the vegetables are dancing, and she tries to explain to him, no, no, it's not, it's actually the hot water that's making them dance. So this is what he's talking about, it's my proximity, he calls it. Supervisor, avyaksena, is the supervisor. Looking into these key Sanskrit words is very helpful. That's why this version of Gita is very good for us, because it helps us to plumb deeper than we would just by reading the sloka and trying to understand. We actually go to the Sanskrit word and say, what word did he use for proximity? What word does he use for me? And that confers to us a deeper level of understanding. Fools disregard me as one clad in human form, not knowing my higher nature as the great Lord of all beings. That's sloka 11. Sloka 12, of vain hopes, vain actions, vain knowledge, devoid of discrimination, partaking verily of the delusive nature of the Rakshasas and the Asuras. These are, of course, Rajasic and Tamasic beings. Here he's describing Asuram Chadaivim and what I was calling earlier Muda Mahatma, the fools and the luminaries, or the conscious and the unconscious. And he's just told us that there are two kinds of beings, 
to follow the Sanskrit, mudaha cha mahatma, that is, there are fools and there are luminaries, or great souls. The fools, not to be taken in a sense uh, that we understand the term necessarily in the West, like a buffoon or somebody like that, although, of course, those would fall under that category, but more people who are fooled by the appearance of maya and believe it to be real. They don't know the supreme secret that the whole thing is a projection. Sometimes you hear that idea about a divine play or a stage with many actors, Leela, Maya, that kind of thing. But people don't necessarily take it literally. What they take literally is the appearance of things. Therefore, those are people, as Sri Krishna says, and to quote Sloka 12, of vain hopes, of vain actions, and of vain knowledge, who are devoid of discrimination. That is, of course, between the real and the unreal. And they partake verily of the delusive nature of rakshasas and asuras. The rakshasas were very mighty uh, warriors and builders, always imbued with the power of energy to uh, construct, to own, to rule over. And the asuras, of course, have that tamasic element in them which predominates. Mohini prakriti is a nice Sanskrit term there. Delusive nature, people who are deluded, they believe that this bodily existence is the be-all and end-all of life. But, on the other hand, Sri Krishna says in Sloka 13, but the Mahatmams, O Partha, partaking of divine nature, worship me with a single mind, a single word too, really, Om, and knowing me as the immutable and the source of all beings. So, these are the two different kinds of beings, very different in perspective. In Sloka 14, he says about the Mahatmas, glorifying me always, striving, firm in vows, prostrating before me, they worship me with devotion, which is ever steadfast. Others sacrifice with the yagya of knowledge and worship me in various ways as the one, the distinct, the many-faced, now here comes a rendering of these different uh, appellations of Krishna. I am Kratu, that is a Vedic ritual. I am Yagya, that is of course sacrifice. I am Svadha, I am the medicinal herb. I am the mantra. I am also the clarified butter, which they used to offer into the fire as the offering. I am the fire itself and I am the oblation. Almost like our Brahmar Panambra Mahavir, they used to do these sacrifices a lot in those times, in Vedic times. This was pre-Upanishadic Vedic times. Uh, the Upanishads were a fourth section of the Vedas which came somewhat later based upon these realizations of Brahman. I am the father of this world, the mother, the dispenser, and the grandfather. I am the noble, the purifier, the syllable Om, and also the Rik, Saman, and Yajus. Those are, of course, three Vedas. Rik Veda, Saman Veda, and Yaju Veda. I am the goal, the supporter, the lord, the witness, the abode, the shelter, the friend, the origin, the dissolution, the foundation, the treasure house, and the seed imperishable. Nice list of things. Actually, I wanted to read about the goal. He says, I am the goal. Here's what the commentator says, which is very nice. The goal of life varies with people, but all divergent goals of all people can be sorted and brought unmistakably under three classes, striving for long, efficient life, seeking after wider knowledge, and searching for more happiness. These are the three categories of not being seek. 
And these three groups are nothing but the modifications of Satchitananda, called life, light, and love. This is a comprehensive definition of God. He is therefore the direct or indirect goal of all beings. So, a very nice way of saying that even those who aren't seeking God or aren't worshipping God, as Vivekananda says, are still worshipping God, only unbeknownst to them. That's why Vivekananda used to say, even the thief steals because of that love for God or that love of freedom. Now, that's not his realization, but nonetheless, that's the underlying principle of it all. So that's an interesting way of putting it. When he says, I am the goal, really he means life, light, and love. Or, if you wish, striving for long, efficient life, seeking after knowledge, and searching for more happiness. All beings do that. It's just a matter of how they do it, and what they settle for, or what they strive for. I give heat, I withhold and send forth the rain, I am immortality and death. That's a nice saying. I am immortality and death. Amritam chava mrityu. I am amrit, the nectar of immortality. I am mrityu, I am death. By saying that, he declares himself subtly as the overseer of all coming and going, katagatam, these beings coming and going in and out of prakriti. If he's both immortality and death, then he oversees the whole process as its detached witness consciousness. I am being as well as non-being. So you can't escape that imperishable, all-pervasive Brahman by fastening either the form or non-form, or the form and the formless. You'll still be inside of that regime of Prakriti in its manifest or unmanifested form. You must uh, instead realize that one immutable being which pervades them, which pervades all such dualities, even such dualities as form and formlessness. This is a hard thing for even philosophers to understand. They'll either transcend form and cling to the formless, or if they be materialistic, they'll just believe in the form and, and not think anything exists beyond that. But here we have a very unique secret, guya, a science and secret that declares that there's something beyond both form and formlessness. Being told to us out of the mouth of Krishna consciousness itself, sometimes also called Christ consciousness, or Buddha mind. The knower of the three Vedas, the drinkers of Soma, purified from sin, worshipping me by sacrifices, pray for the way to heaven. They reach the holy world of the Lord of the Devas and enjoy in heaven the celestial pleasures of the Devas. This I have on the board. This is where he begins his discourse on abiding in states of coming and going. Anuprapanaha gatagatam. To go on with that, Sulka 21, having enjoyed the vast world of heaven, they return to the world of mortals on the exhaustion of their merits. Thus abiding by the injunctions of the three Vedas, desiring objects of desires, they go and they come. At first reading one might say, that sounds fun, that sounds nice, let's do that, let's be one of those. But as I say, the Gita and the Upanishads both caution about that and and point to a higher state. Now, slokas 22 through 25, you can read those. To those men who worship me alone, thinking of no other, who are ever devout, I provide gain and security. Even those devotees who, endowed with faith, worship other gods, they really worship me alone, but, but by the wrong method. 
I am verily the enjoyer and the lord of all yagyas, but these men do not know me in reality, hence they fall. That is, fall into those worlds of becoming. And here we come to another section, which I have there on the board, Ishvara Vrataha. And you see there the four echelons of devout vows. What about people who take vows? And what do these vows consist of? Here we see Yanti Devavrata Devan, Pitrin Yanti Pitri Rataha, Bhutani Yanti Bhuteja, Yanti Madhyajino Pimam. Votaries of the Devas go to the Devas, that is the gods. Votaries of the Pitrus go to the Pitrus, that means ancestors. To the Bhutas go the Bhuta worshippers, that means humans thinking themselves to be the body mind mechanism and subhumans, animals. Those are all Bhutas. But my votaries come to me. And here, implied in this, is something that I've called out from the Gita called the four echelons of devout vows. You see them on the board. There's Devavrata, that is, worshippers of the gods. Pitrivrata, worshippers of the ancestors. Bhutavrata, worshippers of the physical. And Ishvaravrata, worshippers of the Lord. Those can be classified into four different vows, as it were. A vow is uh, not necessarily something you just take consciously, but something that you you do or or are in your own mental makeup. So you can be relegated or even restricted to a certain kind of lifestyle or mentation, which necessarily classifies you just in one category like that. If you can come to some sort of faith, shraddha, as he said, these beings who have faith in me, I provide them both gain and security. That gain and security comes without the attachment, you see, or without the attachment to what's being gained or the kind of security that, that you have. In other words, that security means an eternal security. You have God as your very foundation. Sarupya, salokya, you get the very uh, celestial spheres of God as your own, but you're never attached to them. Samipya, you, you're dear to God. And sayuja, you get the realization of God. Sayuja means nirvana. You get that highest state of realization. So these four vows are interesting to look at. And if you look around the world, you can see some of these countries. You have worship of ancestors. Uh, and even in India, you had that by offering the ancestors food at a shraddha ceremony. Or you see in some of the Oriental countries, even nowadays, that um, they have graveyards for dogs, mausoleums for dogs, and so they they cherish their animal so much that you know they treat it like human, and uh, bury it and go and offer flowers to it after it's gone and so forth. This is a kind of form of Buddha worship, isn't it? So there are various worships going on here. Of course, these worships and these vows can be positive or negative, depending on how you do them. However. There is a superiority to this Ishvaravrata, they say, that is, the worshippers of the Supreme Lord, because the fruits go thereof to those beings. Uh, those who worship the gods get the celestial heavens, those who worship uh, the Bhutas get the earth. You've heard Christ say that too, grant unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but take unto yourself what is the Lord. So there are fruits associated with each of these kinds of worship and each kind of vow or mental state one is in around them. So those who, uh, as it were, refine themselves, have a higher realization, for instance, that God is all-pervasive, 
they become worshippers of Ishvara. They know, as Svambhakananda said, the very highest thing the mind can conceive of as far as divinity in this world of name and form is Ishvara, the Supreme Lord. And that is also the door into Brahman, whereas worshipping of the gods is a door back into the <coughs> celestial heavens, worshipping of the ancestors is a doorway back into the astral worlds, worshipping of the Buddhas is a doorway back to the physical worlds. See, worshipping of Ishvara is a door into the immeasurable, unlimited, formless essence called Brahman. So, my votaries come to me. Whoever offers me with devotion a leaf, a flower, a fruit, or water, I accept that which is the pious offering of the pure in heart. And Sloka 26, I'm just reading the slokas in between these, and then I'm commenting on the ones that are actually on the board, so we can course through the whole chapter. So now we come to 27, which is on the board too. He says here, in 27, whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you offer and sacrifice, whatever you gift away, whatever austerity you practice, do it as an offering to me. Okay, there's where the way you do anything is important, with what mental state you enter into it. That is, you could see an enlightened being worshipping an animal. But you see what a different state of mind he was in than a person who's considering the animal to be real and is attached to the animal. It's like putting an animal on the on the level of Ishvara. So, shuba shuba falir. Freedom from the karma due to seeking fruits. Various fruits are proceeding from these uh, acts that you're doing. It's karma, in short. And so... Krishna says, whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you offer and sacrifice, whatever you gift away, whatever austerity you practice, do it as an offering to me. This is common sense to most moral dharmic people. But there's a, a deeper level of consciousness that you can always bring to it. Making sure you're free of motives in anything you gift away, or you're careful about your habits and so forth, keeping them in accordance with dharma. And also on the level of austerity, what you practice. That's very important. These austerities you do, you should always offer them back to Brahman. You shouldn't think, I'm doing this austerity to better myself, for instance. No, just offer it to God. Like, like a, you know, if you sculpt a beautiful thing, then offer it to God. If you play a beautiful piece of music, offer it to God. You never get attached to the thing itself, because then you're imbuing it with some sort of cause and effect. You see, I did it. So now when it gets destroyed, I suffer from the destruction. Or, I did it, and if somebody praises me, I get prideful, and therefore I suffer from pride. You see, whatever there is attached to it, in the form of a duality, virtue, vice, pleasure, pain, good and bad, you want to be free of that. But if you're doing this with a, the evil tendency, say, to gain money for selfish purposes, or to lord power, or, or to deceive, well, some examples. That's that's ashuba falair, bad fruits. As compared to shuba falair, good fruits. What's that mean? I'm doing this to please the gods. I'm doing this to attain heaven. I'm doing this to get pleasure. I'm doing this to uh, refine my lifestyle and get greater and greater pleasure. Then those are both actions that fall in the realm of karma, cause and effect, and you're getting various fruits from those. So this is what Krishna is pointing out and cautioning against. And in Sloka 28, 
he gives us the uh, answer there. Thus shall you be free from the bondage of actions yielding good and bad results. With the mind firmly set in yoga of renunciation and always liberated, you shall thus come to me. So those two slokas, 27 and 28, are very powerful. And there you see those keys to divine life I mentioned earlier. Conscious ingestion, ashnasi arpanam. Conscious sacrificing, juhosi arpanam. Conscious generosity, dadasi arpanam. And conscious austerity, tapas arpanam. Those are the Sanskrit terms used by Krishna in those slokas, 27, 28. I've called them out and put them into a little group there called the Four Keys to Divine Life. See, that's how you have to look at a sloka. You can't just say, oh, thank you, Krishna, for giving me those teachings. What did you say again? That's what you should do. And what was that again? And what does that mean? And how does it apply to my life? And how can I practice it? And I have questions after that, too. <laughs> you want to study it. You want to bring it to the fore and you want to utilize it because it came from the lips of the Lord. Besides, there's one word that runs through all four of them, conscious. That's what we want to be, conscious. Harpanam, it kind of means an offering, a conscious offering. Harpanam, something you do from the heart. So this goes back to the idea of the mental attitude that you do anything with. Make it all an offering to me, he says, then you'll be free from the results of good and bad effects, both not just the results of bad effects, you'll actually get transcendent of the results of good effects too. You'll transcend gradually attachment to sattva, preoccupation with doing good, which also forms a danger of having some sort of pride of doing good and so forth. That is, sattva is not a negative thing in itself, it's a good place for your mind to be rather than rajas and tamas. Balance is always better. But there's something beyond sattva, trigunatita, one of the Swami's names of the direct disciples of Sharma Krishna took Trigunatita because he wanted to be beyond those three gunas because everything inside the realm of the three gunas is what? Unmanifested property and manifested property. Coming and going. See? Transformation, mutation, uh, transmigration, the apparent coming in and out of existence, changing one's nature. None of that makes sense to an Advaitist. It's all apparent. It's not real. I don't believe it. See, it's a mirage. It's changing. It's changing face of Maya. I want the all-faced Lord, not the changing faces of Maya. See, let me have that. So to get beyond the uh, effects of good and bad is a very powerful science, and most of us know to get beyond the f bad fruits and the results. See, most of us know that, hopefully. But uh, not that many push onward and try and get beyond the opposite duality too. They, they rest there. Holy Mother said, happiness and sorrow, where will they go? They're our friends. They're a part of us. That means they're a part of our mind. They're a part of this whole projection. That's what the projection is based upon, duality. It's, it can't be any other way. Remember Trigunyam and Dvandva Mohena? We had that teaching in the earlier chapters. One of the most powerful slokas in the earlier chapters to get above the three gunas and to get beyond the influence of the pairs of opposites on your life and on your mind. So you're free. You're liberated. That's what he says here. So that you'll always be liberated. Is that what he just said? Yes. Then you should be free of the bondage of actions yielding good and bad results. 
with the mind firmly set in the yoga of renunciation and liberated, you shall come to me. So that's the kind of mindset we want. Imagine it. Uh, and in fact, you don't even have to imagine it. Just read about Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa and Swamiji, even in the midst of the most intense work, amongst the dire, the most dire of circumstances, he remained free and, and uh, ever focused on his true nature. We should all read Vivekananda for inspiration. I told myself that today. I said, Babaji, you're in need of inspiration. Go back and read Vivekananda. Mm -hmm. See? Sloka 33, the transient joyless world. <laughs> I like that very much. <laughs> when you could laugh at things that are negative, then you know that you're on the right track. You see, so when I read something like Anitya Masukkam Lokam, that the world is transient and joyless, I tend to laugh because uh, it makes me feel very good. Of course, for me, it means seeing clearly through the roots of Maya and knowing yourself to be the eternal joy itself. Maya confers not one iota of benefit on the mind. That beings are are, are there you know, striving and working so hard and so forth, and they're not getting anything out of it. They think they are. It's called spinning your wheels. But it's all going on inside of you. You can't get anything out of it because you can't change your true nature, and your true nature is the foundation of everything. It, it's just so ironically funny when you look at it. And that's why Kali, Mother Kali has words like hum. You know, she'll say that with the Abhaya Mudra, stop, cease, be still. It's a nice song by Ram Prasad. Stop, cease, be still. Means you know, stop in your tracks. What are you doing? It's like saying, "Who am I?" Only on the level of tantra, maybe, instead of yoga or Vedanta, and just saying, "Look back into yourself and say, I've gotten so involved in this outer show, you know, and it's all my own doing. Not only is the involvement my own doing, but the belief in it is my own doing, and it'll also be my own doing if I cease, cease and be still." else it'll be my undoing. <laughs> so that's what meditation is, isn't it? That's why Ram Prasad sings, just practice meditation and cut time down. Time is an illusion, so cut it down like a banyan tree. It's always sprouting, sprouting, sprouting. Or Sri Ramakrishna said, cut a banana tree one day and it come back the next day and the water's collected in it and it's begin to sprout again. Go to the root, tear it out by the root. See, the root meaning... Uh, this world is real. See, I believe in it. I invest all my energy in it. But the truth is that you are the reality, and this world is a projection. That's why the most famous Vedantic statement, and which gives the most trouble to people, is Brahman Satya Jagad Mitya. Brahman is real, world is unreal. They can't quite accept that the world is unreal. They still have hope for it. However, if their hope was all in Brahman, it would be fine, wouldn't it? The world could go on as it will. Beings will be born and they'll pass. The coming and going will continue. Maya will project, Maya will withdraw. But true hope, the true hope that Christ meant, that is hope for 
realization in Brahman or hope for higher things. It's the same thing as Sri Ramakrishna is saying, if you have despair, then despair that you haven't realized God. If you have lust, then lust after God. If you have anger, be angry you haven't realized God. That's the kind of hope we meet. Uh, it all has to be in Brahman because everything is in Brahman. He's just told us that at the outset of the chapter. I am all pervasive. Everything is in me. It's a very subtle teaching, one that brings home some very powerful and sobering teachings for our best good. So, Shloka 33 here to end. Kim punar brahmanaha punya bhakta rajar sayastata anicham asukam lokam imam prapya bajasvamam. The holy devoted saints, they attain the goal for having come into this transient, joyless world. They verily worship me. Mm. It's like Holy Mother saying in our birthday reading last week, I've deposited you there at the feet of Ramakrishna. You can't go anywhere outside that circle because that's all pervasive. Now just be content. Be content wherever the Lord has put you because your true nature is Brahman. For you, the devotees, the more these desires in this world comes and goes, the better because you'll get practice, you see. You'll get practice at seeing it come and go. And in, with your mental perspective now, with this precious secret, Raja Vidya, Raja Guya, that Krishna is trying to remind us of again and again, with that in your mind, the coming and going will all become that cosmic joke for you. It's all Mother's projection. It's all in Brahman. So, he doesn't just say it's a joyless, transient world. He says, the holy Brahmas and the devoted saints attain the goal. There are beings who have attained the goal, which must be outside or other than this joyless, transient world, Jagadmitya, the illusory world. In the two or three minutes remaining, let's read to the end because we're right there. I am the same to all beings. To me there is none hateful and none dear. But those who worship me with devotions, they are in me and I am in them. Ah, finally, you see, earlier he said, I'm not in them, meaning these beings that come and go and so forth. But now he says, they're all the same to me. In other words, he's detached, he's unconcerned, he knows they're all in him. It's like it's like a, a father or a mother watching their six children gad about on the floor, knowing that they're all there, they love them all. So he feels that way about all beings. Yet, those who worship me with devotion, they are in me. I am also in them. Finally, he admits those who love Brahman, who know Brahman, who love Ishvara, they are in Brahman. They become Brahman or they are Brahman. I am Atma Brahman. This self is Brahman. They have that realization. Even a man of the most sinful conduct, if he worships me with undeviating devotion, he must be reckoned as righteous, for he has rightly resolved. So, again, how the mind thinks. I've sinned, I've transgressed, now forgive me, Lord, I've seen my mistake. Forgiveness, they say, is the, one of the greatest austerities. They say, what kind of austerity shall I do? Shall I stand on one leg for in ice water for five years? Or, uh, shall I whip myself and walk across the continent, you know, whipping myself at every step? What kind of austerity could I do? Forgiveness is one of the greatest austerities, they say. And that forgiveness can extend to other people, but also has to extend to you. 
So soon does this person of righteousness become righteous and obtains lasting peace. Remember what Holy Mother said about that. Peace is the essential thing. You must have peace. So, Arjuna, know for certain that my devotee never perishes. Never perishes means they transcend and get outside of samsara, pragbara, the stream of souls revolving in birth and death, rather than koivalya pragbara. See the stream of souls going from freedom to freedom. They're never bound. Ever free, never bound, Swamiji called them. Nichasiddhas, ever perfect. If they take on a body, they know the whole thing to be a matter of projection. Mahamaya's dream. The dream power of the Absolute is at work. I see that. I know myself to be the eternal Brahman. For those who take refuge in me, Arjuna, though they be of inferior birth, even they attain the supreme goal. How much more then do the holy Brahmanas and devoted saints attain that goal, having come into this transient, joyless world to worship me? Fix your mind on me, be devoted to me, sacrifice unto me, bow unto me. Having thus made yourself steadfast in me and taking refuge in me as the supreme goal, you will come to me. And of this there is no doubt, he says. My devotee never perishes. So these are priceless teachings from chapter 9, Rajavidya Rajaguya Yoga, the yoga of the supreme science and the sovereign secret, which we've chanted with the tambora at our retreats on several mornings. So let's end with a chant, and thank you for your kind attentions. Om Bhadram Om Bhadram Karnebihi Srinayama Devaha Bhadram Pasyema Akshabirya Jatraha Stirai Rangayish Tushtuvam Sastanuvir Vyashema Devahitam Yadayahu Swastina Indra Vrida Shravaha Swastinam Pusha Vishvadevaha Svastina Starksho Arishtanemihi Svasti no Brihaspatir Dadatu Om Shanti 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 Om Tachnayo Om Tachnayo Javrini Mahi Gatum Yagyaya Gatum Yenupataye Daivi Svastirastunaha Svastir Manusevyaha Urdvam Jigatu Besajam Sangnoastu Dvipade Sangjatushpate Om Shanti 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 May we see with these eyes what is good and spiritual and hear with these ears what is noble and uplifting. May we, while worshipping the Lord, with healthy minds and bodies, live a life which is beneficial to ourselves and to others. And may we always offer everything into the great self, selflessly and with great devotion. May we always revere this self and always delight in all offerings, revere the mother and Lord of all sacrifices. May divine blessings be upon us. May peace come into all beings. May healing, well-being, and prosperity then also abide among us. Om peace, peace, peace. May peace be unto us, and may peace be unto all.